You're listening to TIP. It's Berkshire weekend, so we decided to bring the big guns. With us today, ladies and gentlemen, like last year and the year before in this iconic weekend, I invited fan favorite Manish Paprai on the Investors Podcast. I'll be talking to Manish about his new investing framework, and we'll touch upon a few of the investments he made since we last talked and much, much more. If you're a fellow value investor, you're going to love this conversation with Mr. Manish Paprai. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and today's guest, Moniz Papri, needs no further introduction. Moniz, let's jump right into it. I know that 2020 has been a year of learning for you, perhaps the biggest year of learning since 1994, which was the year where you picked up one up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch in Heathrow Airport and through that learned about Warren Buffett. Saying that 2020 was perhaps the biggest year learning since then seems like a tall order. What have you learned? I used to have a license plate called COMLB26, Compound 26. And my daughter took that plate from me. So now that plate is on her car. And I told her, you know, the plate comes with a lot of responsibility. You have to be compounding at high rates if you're going to keep that plate. So she's got some pressure on her. But the the compound 26 really came from the fact that when I first started investing in 94, and I first heard about Warren Buffett, I thought, okay, you know, if you buy a company at half off, 50% off, and it converges to fair value, in two or three years. So 50 cents becomes a dollar. If it takes three years, it would be just about exactly 26% a year because 1.26 cube is two. And if it took two years, it'd be even better. It'd be close to 35%. And uh, so I said, well, you know, this compounding at 26% should be pretty easy because if you find a 50 cent dollar, three years is a long time to get to convergence. And if it's a growth company, And in the three years it grows, then you can get even more than that. And of course, what I've discovered in the last maybe 27, 28 years is it's not so simple because first of all, you have an error rate. So some things you buy, you actually make a mistake and they may flatline or you may may even lose money. So that affects some of the returns. In some cases, you may not be completely right. So you may not get a double, you may get a 50% return in a few years, or some may flatline. So there's a whole range of things that happen on that front. And, but it still works pretty well. But when I, when I encountered Nick Sleep's framework, I thought that framework was extremely powerful. So Nick asked the question that if you were an institutional investor and you owned Walmart, and let's say you bought it in 1980 or 1990, uh, somewhere in that time frame. What exactly was the data point or data points that made you sell the stock? If you look at the Walton family, you know, Sam Walton and his, his heirs, Walmart went public in 1970. From 1970 to 2021, 51 years, the Walton family hasn't sold. Even though Sam Walton passed away, the Walton family kept the shares. 
and they've done really well with it. So Nick asked the question, why is it that the Walton family kept the shares and did so well? And all these institutional investors who Walmart is not a difficult business to understand. It's a pretty straightforward business. And it's pretty straightforward to understand the moat of the business. So the, the question he asked was, why is it that no institutional investors held the stock of Walmart for 30 years or 40 years or 50 years or even 20 years, right? They didn't hold it. And so he asked the question of both Walmart and Kmart. He says that if you were an institutional investor and you held Walmart, what exactly went through your mind that caused you to sell it? And on the other hand, if in the 1990s or early 2000s, if you held Kmart, what exactly caused you not to sell? In one of his last emails to me, he said to me that the best investors in the world are not investors at all. They are entrepreneurs who never sold. Okay. So the framework, the framework that Nick Sleep was using was a very different framework than what I was using, which is the compound 26, the 50 cent dollars. Nick's approach was that if you own a business like Walmart, don't fixate on the multiple. Don't fixate that this is trading at 25 times earnings or 20 times earnings or whatever else. Ask yourself a simple question. Is the business getting better? Is the moat getting deeper? Is the moat getting wider? Is the business intact? If the business is intact, unless, unless the pricing is egregious, it's gone crazy. Like it becomes like GameStop or something. Just keep the stock. So basically what he's saying is use the same framework that the founders and the entrepreneurs who started these businesses use. And so he used that framework with Amazon. So Nick, Nick Sleep uh, shut down his fund in early 2014. And when he got cashed out, he put all his money in three stocks, Berkshire Hathaway, Costco, and Amazon. And he told his investors when he returned the money in 2014, listen, just take the money we're giving back to you, put it in these three stocks, and you don't have to pay us ridiculous fees, and you don't have to read our letters. Life is great. And if those institutional investors had taken his advice, at that time in 2014, Amazon was at $300 a share. So you would have a 10x on Amazon in the last seven or eight years, which would pretty much blow out almost any institutional investor in terms of returns. And Costco and, and Berkshire has, haven't done as well. Berkshire has actually lagged the S&P, but it didn't matter. It wouldn't have mattered. If you had put one third of your portfolio in Amazon, the overall portfolio results would be exceptional. So I had been an entrepreneur for all these decades. And I recognize that so, for example, if I look at the GP interest of Pabrai Funds, which I own 100%, it's a fantastic business. It's an unbelievably great business. And it's a business that has extreme volatility because I don't charge management fees. So I went 10 years from 2007 to 2017 with no fees. But even with that volatility, if you offered me $50 million or $100 million, for that GP interest, it would not even take me a second to say I'm not interested. In fact, I'm almost not interested at any price because I enjoy it so much. 
but also recognize that it's a great business. So I recognize it's a great business because I'm a founder and so on, but I can have that same framework on portfolio companies. So for example, uh, two years ago, I made an investment in a company in Turkey. And this Turkish company was, it was a ridiculously undervalued company. It was a $19 billion market cap, one nine. And liquidation value was somewhere between, let's say, three or 400 million to a billion dollars. It was pretty widely mispriced. And it wasn't just a cigar butt, like something trading cheap, great capital allocators and great assets. And almost for sure, the intrinsic value was going to keep increasing. So if you bought it, it wasn't that the 19 million would become 300 million at some point. It was possible that if you held it long enough, the 19 million might become several billion. Okay. So I was surprised because Turkey has such high trading volumes that uh, we were able to get a 33% stake in the business for about $7 million. Well done, Monish. Well done. Even if I pat myself on the back, stake, it's okay. And now, when I bought this company in Turkey in 2019, I did not have the Nick Sleep framework. What I understood is I'm going to hold this company for a while, and I'm going to wait for this convergence to happen. And then when it converges, I look at selling it. And if its intrinsic value is a billion and it gets to a billion market cap, that's a good time to sell it. That framework has been thrown out the window. There's a new framework. And the new framework is really simple. Is the business getting better? And if it's getting better, I now think of myself as a owner of the business. I'm not a founder, but I think of it like the founder thinks of it. So the family that runs the business, they own 44%. I told them, I'm your junior partner. I own 33%. You'll never hear from me how you guys should run your show because you guys know how to do that really well. My job is to just cheer you on from the sidelines. That's all. And so, so my framework with that company is, as long as the business is getting better, and as long as the moat is at least staying as good as it was, if not getting better, we have no plans to sell that business. We have no plans to sell a single share for five years, 10 years, 20 years, as long as it takes, okay? And now my framework is that I want to find more of these. Now, I'm not going to get lucky to find $19 million market caps worth $500 million. The gods love me, but they don't love me so much. If they give me one of these every 10 years, that's very generous. So even if I don't get it at a discount, so Nick Sleep pointed out that you could have bought Walmart in the 1970s at a PE of 100 or a PE of 150, and you would have still made like 13, 14% a year for the next 50 years. So you could have almost paid any price Walmart was trading at in the 70s or the 80s, and you would have still had a double-digit return over a very long period with no capital gains tax and just uh, you know, pure compounding. So my framework now is to find long-term compounders, which 
even if we don't get them at big discounts to what they're worth, and the, in the end, the compounding engine will take care of that. So I used to think Nick Sleep was a rock star. You know, I just described a rock star, Nick Sleep. But then I heard of Naspers in South Africa. Are you familiar with Naspers? Yes. Okay. So Naspers put $32 million into Tencent in, I think, 2001 is when they made the Tencent investment, about 20 years ago. And until now, they have never sold. And basically, that $31 million, that stake in, in Tencent is over $250 billion now. And so Naspers took the same point of view, which is that we are an owner of this business. And they don't run the business, but hats off to them. So they've had something like an 8,000% return on their investment just for sitting on their butt and doing nothing. And so what I've realized is that if I can eventually get a portfolio of eight or 10 of these, which have these types of characteristics, good business, good mode, long, long runways, you're done. And even if I can find one of those a year, that's great. Set it and forget it. So that's the new framework I'm excited about. The new and improved Manish. That's what we're witnessing now. (laughs) (laughs) I have to come up with new stuff for you, Stig. Otherwise, who's going to listen to you? That's true. That's true. (laughs) You said it well. Manish, it's interesting that you would lead off by, by talking about it. Knowing that 2020 has been such a, such a year of learning for you. One thing I heard you said there back in the fall was that you talked about spawners and you talked about how you, at the time, just bought your fourth spawner as a Japanese company and you would like to build a portfolio of spawners if, if possible. Could you please share your framework with the audience about spawners and perhaps also talk about a few characteristics of how to identify them? I mean, I think... When I ran uh, an IT services business, I was running this IT service in the 1990s. Basically, I had to reinvent the business about three or four times in about 10 years. Because what would happen is we would identify a niche uh, which was not very competitive. We would have super normal profits. Then everyone would figure it out and they would come into the business and those profits would go down. And then I'd have to, you know, come, come up with another one and so on. So what we were doing on a very small scale at that time is we were spawning these new micro businesses inside this small business. And eventually these micro businesses would get healthy and grow and their cash flows would actually be better than the mothership. Companies that have the ability to create new businesses within from the mothership is a very rare and unusual type of DNA. Most companies have no ability to do that. Capitalism is very brutal. And when you finally figure out and have a mousetrap that makes money and that people are willing to come to you and give you money and be customers and all of that, it's really difficult to come up with another mousetrap because it's just so competitive. And Many kind of luck factors may have contributed to even the first mousetrap being successful. And uh, so generally speaking, creating new businesses from an existing business is a very rare and unusual talent and unusual DNA. 
But there are some companies that are set up in such a way and have such DNA and origin and founders that they are able to do this really well. So a good example of what I would call an apex spawner is Amazon, right? So Amazon first started as a bookstore, then they went to many retail categories. And then after that, they just kept innovating and they would keep throwing things against the wall. So you remember the Fire Phone? So, you know, they came up with the Fire Phone. They offered it for 99 cents, okay, to try to disrupt the phone business. Even at 99 cents, they failed. But Jeff's perspective was, I'll throw a lot of stuff up against the wall. 90% of it will fail, but 90% of it will also not cost us much. And a few things will stick and we'll scale that. So a lot of things Amazon did, did not work, but several things did work. Kindle worked, Prime worked. And then what he did is he started looking at his cost of goods sold. Like, for example, shipping was a cost of goods sold. And he went into the shipping business. Or, you know, these aircraft that are flying around with Amazon packages, he bought the company that has those aircraft and, uh, and so on. And uh, he bought the robotics company that provides the robots for his warehouses. And then the biggest one for him was he was using cloud infrastructure, home built for his retail business. And then he offered that as a service to others. And of course, now the cloud business is bigger in value than everything else at Amazon. So what was a cost center has become a tremendous revenue center. So similarly, Alphabet has either bought or innovated. You know, they they bought YouTube, one of the best acquisitions ever. They bought Android, which is another great acquisition. And they're working on things like self-driving and so on. Alibaba is another great spawner. It has spawned in so many areas, the cloud, Alipay, and then so many other logistics businesses and other businesses they've set up. So if you can find a company that is good at spawning, the big advantage you get is a couple of things. One is, if I'm a business that's going to report $100 million in net income, Uncle Sam will take $25 million of that. But if I can take the $100 million and use $50 million of it on these new innovative spawners, my tax bill is now 11 and a half, 12 and a half million. My tax bill got cut in half. So Uncle Sam becomes a very benevolent VC in this game where he says, yeah, it's okay, take my money. And I don't care if you take 20 years to bring it back, no problem. Or if it never comes back, it's okay, no problem. The best VC is, is, is Uncle Sam. So Amazon, through most of its history, hardly paid any taxes. Because what they did is whatever money the core business was producing, they dumped it into spawners, which pretty much wiped out net income. So this is much better than buying back stock. If you buy back stock, you actually have to make net income, pay Uncle Sam, and then use the what's left over to buy back stock. Spawning is kind of like on steroids compared to buying back stock. So spawning is very advantageous. Secondly, if you have digital spawners, like Amazon or Alphabet or Alibaba, by definition, these are high ROE businesses. They just generate high returns because of their digital nature. You know, you don't have land and warehouses and facilities. So you just make a lot of money. So the return characteristics of these businesses is really good. So for example, the going back to the business I invested in Turkey, 
their core business is warehouses and the warehouses are leased to Alibaba, Amazon, Carrefour, Ikea, etc. They have spawned many, many other businesses. And in their case, the spawning is not digital. It's analog spawning. But the founders of the business really understand capital allocation well. If they don't generate a high return or they can't see a high return, they will not put their money up. So they need to see the money come back at the most in three or four years. And so so what I realized later, it took me a couple of years to realize that, that this company wasn't just undervalued. It actually had spawning DNA because they had already gone into a number of businesses and their uh, failure rate was really low. They were very careful in what businesses they went into. So spawning is awesome. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So we came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Last time we spoke, we talked about creative destruction and how the tenure in the S&P 500 is just getting shorter and shorter. BlackBerry would just be one example. 2009, almost 50% market share. Then the iPhone came 2014, 1%. That's how fast it can go. Was that sort of like what sparked you to look at spawning? Was it more like sleep? I think spawning came about because of COVID, because I didn't spend my time on airplanes and hotel rooms. I had a lot of time to contemplate my navel, and it is a very good idea to contemplate your navel from time to time. I think the spawning, actually the framework, came up when I was drooling on my pillow. So I was kind of sleeping or half sleeping. And I was thinking about different things and different companies. And I realized, especially when I looked at, because I was looking at Nick Sleep's Amazon bet. And Nick had focused very heavily 
on Amazon's retail business. When he first invested in Amazon, he asked himself, what percentage of retail could be online in 10 or 20 years? And then what percentage of that online could be Amazon? These were the types of questions he was asking himself. But I realized that Amazon's real success did not come from retail. It came from spawning. And so I realized, no, it's not really retail, it's cloud. But then where is cloud coming from? And I realized it's coming from the innovative DNA embedded deep in Amazon. So even now, you know, Jeff Bezos has retired, quote unquote retired, but he's not retired. All he's done is he's given away all the boring CEO responsibilities. And he's definitely going to be very engaged. And he's probably going to spend even more time on invention and innovation. That's where he wants to spend his time. And so the spawning DNA of Amazon actually is getting a boost because Jeff has got less distractions. Because running a public company, you've got a lot, lots and lots of obligations and pressures to deal with. So I'm surprised he waited this long to do what he did. So I think that this came about really from just trying to understand Amazon better and then trying to understand Nick Sleep's model. And I think Nick himself went through a journey where he realized that it wasn't just the retail, that it was all these other things that Amazon was doing that were creating tremendous value. But he, I don't think he had figured out that it was a kind of spawning framework. So that came about probably just when I was drooling on my pillow. Manish, I'd like to talk a bit about serverless competence because it is it is time consuming. We don't always have a COVID to to just sit down and learn. So let me let me ask you uh, this hypothetical question because there's always opportunity cost in you spending time on something else. If you could choose to expand your serverless competence and be an expert in a split second into given sector, technology, country, whatever it might be, where would you add to your serverless competence? It would come at no time cost. Well, if there was no time cost, I'd really like to get on top of AI and uh, you know machine learning and that area. I think that we are in, in a very embryonic phase there, but there's going to be a lot of a lot of growth and development there. So I'd like to get better at that area. The other thing I'd like to get better at, if there was no time, is I'd like to understand. I would love to spend a year or two at Anderson Horowitz, Sequoia Fund, and so on. I'd really like to be a fly on the wall in those places and because you know they've got such high hit rates. So just what is the DNA that those places have and how can I get some of that lightning in a bottle? Just see what's going on with Sequoia China right now and, and their hit rate. It's absolutely amazing. Manish, we previously talked about you know, growing pies and, and discounted pies. That's how you refer to it. And, and of course, the students of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, that's uh, something that we know of. And typically, investors choose to take one or the other approach. One thing I heard you talk about is that we could also consider if we should include the quote-unquote 17-year cycles into this. And even though the numbers mm-hmm. are not exact 17 years necessarily, that's sort of like how they're typically referred to. Could you please explain to audience perhaps a bit more about what the 17-year cycles are and if that still ties into your investing approach right now, given the framework you talked about before? Yeah, I mean, I think it helps you fish where the fish are. So, you know, if you, if you go through the last 100 years, 
maybe 125 years of the S&P 500 or the Dow, it's done about 9% a year. But the 9% a year is really fiction because it didn't like go up 9% every year. They were long periods, sometimes periods as long as 25 years, 27 years when the returns were zero, just flat. It was the same as what it was 25 years ago. And there are periods when there are 15 or 17 year periods where it's advanced at 17, 18% a year for the whole market. So we've had long periods of flat line or declining markets. And we've also had equally long periods of very robust markets. So basically what happens in stock markets, because they are auction driven, they overshoot and undershoot all the time. So for example, in 1982, US stocks were very undervalued. You could have picked up companies like Coke or American Express at single digit multiples, seven, eight times earnings, six times earnings, that sort of thing. Disney was at a single digit multiple. And uh, if you went back to 1965, for example, stocks were very overheated, very high multiples. And if you look at 1999, 17 years after 82, very high multiples. Coke was no longer at six times earnings. It was more than 40 times earnings. American Express, more than 40 times earnings. All these high flyers, GE, which you know we subsequently discovered was not such a great business, was at peak market valuation, I think 600 billion market cap, never saw that market cap again. So businesses overshoot and undershoot quite frequently. And in the US, we've seen these 17-year cycles, 65, 82, 99, and now from 99 onwards till almost 2013, 2014, it was again flat. We didn't go through 17 years, we went to at least 13, 14 years of flat markets. And uh, the reason markets do this overshooting and undershooting is because humans get euphoric or pessimistic. So we know that in early 80s, Japan had the most mega bubble. The real estate went crazy. And then with that, the stock market went crazy and everything got ridiculously overpriced. The Nikkei after 40 years is still not back to where it was. So if you look at Japan today, it's very cheap. If you look at Korea, it's pretty cheap. If you look at Turkey, it's very cheap. So in terms of fishing where the fish are, there are parts of the U.S. market that I believe are clearly in bubble territory. It's not a very large number of stocks, so relatively small number of stocks, very overvalued. So it's like this vacuum cleaner sucking up cash and putting it into a few names. Then we've got a little larger set of names, tech names, which either are fully priced or maybe overpriced, just depending on how their future business unfolds. So we've got one end of the market, which is very overheated, kind of like the GameStops and Teslas of the world. We've got another end of the market, which is either fully priced or overpriced, kind of like the you know, sales forces and the sales forces and maybe the, the Microsofts and so on of the world. Great businesses are doing really well, but nowhere near value territory and could be overpriced. And then we have a, a bunch of non-sexy businesses, which may be fairly priced or even underpriced. You know, so that's kind of what I, how I think about the U.S. market. But very few bargains, even amongst the, the non-sexy businesses, very few bargains. So there's a lot of money chasing very few names. 
If you look at other countries, the cycles there in different parts of the cycle. So I think Japan, Korea, Turkey, these are markets that are just deeply undervalued. So generally speaking, I think that if investors paid attention to these markets, and then within these markets, they look for great compounders. Don't look for cigar butts. Look for great compounders. Look for the spawners. Look for the growing pies. One would do really well. So whenever you mention that, Manish, and you talked about finding these spawners, finding these stocks with like long runways, and not too long ago, I saw you take a position in Certits Growth Properties. And I know we're not specifically going to talk about that one, and there's confirmation bias and all that, but it's more, more to, like to understand your mindset. Yes, and it was trading at ridiculous low prices. It's definitely not a spawner. That's not what it is. But how do you think about like allocating part of your portfolio in companies you really want? And then what do you do with the rest? I wouldn't call it a placeholder for cash because that would probably be, be stretching it. But it seems like it's a bit of a discounted pie type of, of play. And you don't have to specifically talk about that, that stock, which is more how do you think about those two different piles of money in your portfolio? Yeah, so Seritage actually may not have been a stock that if it showed up today on my radar, I might have been interested in. It's possible I still would be, but the Seritage came up on the radar in the pre-Nick Sleep era. It came up in the pre-Spawner era. So these frameworks were not in place. And it came up right when in kind of March 2020, when the world was crashing and burning. That's when it came up. And at that time, I was looking at a lot of stocks were falling and I was trying to figure out what would be a great play and what might be a good way to, to play this. So I noticed that Seritage went from $35 to $40 a share that was trading to $6 to $9 a share. It went through a pretty dramatic and they actually were facing significant headwinds. They were in many ways, you can say, in the eye of the storm because uh, retail was shut down in the country. They were in this process of morphing the Sears stores into other things and increasing their rents and all of that. And all of that was uh, basically going to be a difficult business to be in. I think the way I looked at it then, and that's, one, that's why I think even today I might have been interested to buy in, is that if you take a 10 or 20-year view of a company like Seritage, and if they can get past this hump, there are some challenges they have in this hump. If I fast forward 10 or 20 years, I believe Seritage, which today has like 180-odd properties, may not have more than 30 or 40 properties. But those 30 or 40 properties would be ultra-prime, and they would have gone through some very significant densification. So for example, they have one property in Dallas, which was a former Sears, which was like you know two or 300,000 square feet. Eventually, that footprint is going to have 3 million or 4 million square feet. It's going to be more than 10x, maybe 15x, what the original footprint was. That's significant. And they have many properties which will do that eventually because they are sitting in such perfect prime locations. So I think if I fast forward 10 or 20 years, and if Seritage is able to navigate the landscape and get to the point where they have these 30 or 40 ultra-prime properties, it becomes a tremendous asset. It becomes a blue chip asset. And uh, so now that I have the framework of Sam Walton and an owner embedded, 
my approach to Seritage is very different than what I had taken when I made the investment. My approach right now is let's watch this movie for 20 years, see what happens. And one of the things that's possible about Seritage, because they are building a competence in taking these beat up kind of dead businesses, the Sears, and transforming them. And that's a very different skill that a lot of REITs don't have. So one can think that it's possible at some point that Seritage could do this for real estate that they don't own today. They could do this for old JCPenney's and old Macy's. So they could be the engine that does the recycling. And if that becomes the eventual business they go into, I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen. It's low probability. It becomes an even better business. So my take on Seritage is there's kind of a range of uh, outcomes. There are at least some outcomes in that range that look exceptional. And of course, there are some outcomes that may not be so good because capitalism is so brutal. And uh, my take is, uh, let's watch the story. I just want to give a handoff to our listeners. Guy Spear, also a good friend of Manish, he's talking with John Mihailovic about Seritage growth properties. I'll just make sure to, to link to that. And just like two short things here. I think the first one is that there's a lot of things I admire when it comes to Guy, but like he's very good at not selling. Like he, he's very good at just like staying put, which is just amazing. And Guy's been owning stock business for a long time, since 15 or 16 and whatnot. It's really hard, at least for me, I don't have Guy's patience. I don't think I have your patience, Manish, to stick with your strategy whenever you see something like this. That might be a discounted pie. That's not what you want to do because you learn from Charlie Munger and you want that growing pie. But then you see it and you're like, I can see the arguments why Seritas would still be a growing pie. But And you're like, shouldn't I just be doing that just because of the NAV? It's like super attractive already at that price point. It must be very challenging for you also, regardless if you have the spawn mindset or not. I think that's correct. I think it's one of the attributes of Guy that I did not appreciate as much as I should have. So he's been exceptional at buy and hold. It's his normal way of doing things. He's really happy to go through a year where he has no activity. That to him is a perfectly good year. This guy, Thomas Phelps, who wrote this book, 100 to 1 in the stock market, he said that every sale is an admission of a mistake. If you really think about it, every stock sale that you make is an admission of a mistake because if you bought correctly, according to Phelps, you would just buy and hold. And you bought a great business and uh, it's increasing in value. There's no need to mess with it. And uh, so I am trying to be more like Guy. And the number one skill to be a great investor is extreme patience. Stig, if you can derive tremendous pleasure from watching paint dry, you will be a very wealthy man. Just be in this meditative state watching that white wall. And once you can do that, then you're ready to hold Saratage for 20 years. I love that. It reminds me of whenever Guy said that one of the disciplines he's training right now is not to look at the stock market. That's one of his big passions. You remember the movie, The Karate Kid? Right, yes. Well, you know how he tells him to like, paint the wall or whatever, right? And right. this guy's so pissed off. So I'm just thinking that if I'm going to train someone to be a great investor, first I'm going to take them someplace and say, paint this wall white. Now sit here in a chair and watch it for a week. Don't look at your phone and don't look at anything. Then they're going to come back at me and say, this has nothing to do with investing. 
And I'm going to be like the, the guy in the Karate Kid saying it has everything to do with investing. Go back to watching the wall. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's like the sushi restaurant where you have to spend five years learning how to cook rice. So the money's training program is like spend five years looking at the wall and then you're ready to buy your first stock. <laughs> Did you see that movie, Jiro Dreams of Sushi? No, I didn't. Okay, so this is a phenomenal movie. And so if you haven't seen it, I think it's on Netflix. You can see it. Jiro Dreams of Sushi won a lot of awards. It's actually a documentary. It's a real sushi restaurant in uh, Tokyo. I saw the movie. I loved it so much. I went to Tokyo for 11 hours just to eat there. And then I left. And it was awesome. I knocked one thing off, the, off my uh, bucket list. If you didn't get anything else out of this podcast, it's Jiro Dreams of Sushi on Netflix. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the next episode. Monis and I are going to talk about an hour just about that documentary. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. So going back to Warren Buffett also, because this is being featured here 
in the in the Berkshire weekend. When whenever I heard you being asked about Warren Buffett, I often hear you talk about how you learned as much from Buffett whenever it comes to life as it comes to investing. And I kind of feel the same way about you, in the sense that I came for the investing advice and I stayed for the life advice. And as much as as I'm grateful, you're learning a lot from you, even clone your investments, perhaps. Whenever I talk to my friends about you, I don't so much talk about the investments you make, but we talk about Daskana. We talked about being aligned on the inside and on the outside, called the inner scorecard. I think that's how Buffett refers to it. And and I kind of feel that you have. Whenever I study you, you've sort of like taken it to another level. So if I can paint a bit of color around it, so in 1990 you founded TransTech, a tech consulting company, and TransTech became very successful, ultimately employing 160 employees. And so to some people it might be a bit surprising that in 1990 you teamed up with two industrial psychologists and their company. And I love the name of the company; it's called ConQuest, not ConQuest, but ConQuest, like Genghis Khan. And so, what they did was they did interviews with your family, employees, friends, and you received a twenty-page document with the conclusion of that document. What did the document say, and which changes did you make in your life after you read it? That's a wonderful segue, Stig. So, all of us, when we are born, God screwed up because what should have happened is after we are born, we should also come with an owner's manual. You know, attached to us should be our owner's manual because each one of us is different. But we don't come with owner's manual, and so what happens is that we don't know who we are. And what we do is, as we grow up in this world, we have a need to conform, to fit into society. So we emulate what other people do to appear to be, you know, nice, productive members of society. But that may not be who we are. And it, for example, when I was going to college, I had no clue what to study. Everyone said computers are hot, so I went into computer science, and then I switched to computer engineering. That's not a great way to really kind of pick what you ought to be doing. The correct way to pick what you ought to be doing is you should know what you really enjoy, and go after that. That never happened. So who we are as people is. Buried under so many layers of gunk that when we are adults, we really don't know who we are. And so these two industrial psychologists, they gave me effectively what I would call my owner's manual. So they had me take a bunch of tests. They talked to my employees. They talked to my friends. They talked to my family. My kids were too small. They couldn't talk to my kids. Through all of that, they built a a map of who I was. And They said basically, look, you are a certain way on the inside. This is who you are on the inside, and then you know, kind of an incongruence is how you act on the outside. So, if the inside you and the outside you are not perfectly aligned, you will not go very far in life. If you can get very close to perfect alignment, that's when you get to people like Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King and Gandhi and our great leaders and so on. The problem is we don't know who we are on the inside because nobody gave us owner's manual. Well, I got my owner's manual when I was 35 years old, and it was a fascinating read. And I tried to read it every year. So they pointed out that this business I was running with the 160 people, I actually at that time when I did this testing with them, I hated the company. Company I had founded that I was the CEO of, I hated that company, and I didn't feel like going to work because what had happened is. 
it was all politics, a bunch of VPs positioning and all this stuff. And I really enjoyed the very early days of the business when it was embryonic and we were trying to figure different things out and scale it and grow it. It was a game. I really enjoyed that game. When it actually became a large business, what happened is my job changed to human resources. Me just herding a bunch of cats. That's what my job description was. I am not a cat herder. I can tell you that for sure. But every day I'd go in and I'd I'd have to herd a bunch of cats. So they said to me, Monish, we don't even know how you go through the day with the place you're at. So they said, you have to get out of that business as soon as possible. That's not you. And then I asked these people, this was about three months before I started Pabrai Funds. I was saying, look, I'm thinking of starting this fund. And they asked me a bunch of questions about the fund. And they said, the fund is perfect. The fund is what you should do. And the fund will do extremely well. And one of them became one of the original investors in the fund. So I gave him $2,000 for my testing. He gave me $100,000 to invest in the fund. I like the 50 to 1 ratio. And I told him, listen, Jim, I don't want to lose your money and I don't want to lose your friendship. Are you sure you want to do this, et cetera? He said, no, no, I'm, I cracked your head open. I know exactly what's in your head. My money is going to do great. And, and he did. I mean, you know, he, so far it's like 15, 16 times what he put in. So he's doing fine. So I think that that was a tremendous gift to me. The best $2,000 I spent, I think, in my life, it was great. And I think everyone should do this. I think everyone, even before they go to college, because your, your map doesn't change throughout your life. Who you are is not going to change. That is hard-coded. It's hard-coded at the age of six. From the age of six to the age of 96, it is not going to change. Between your genetics and what happens in the first six years of life, it's hard-coded. So basically, you are who you are. Your traits are hard-coded. Now, if you don't act in a way that is congruent with those traits, in the end, you will not be so happy and you'll be frustrated and you won't be able to go very far. It's very important to be in alignment and do what you were designed to do. Thank you for sharing that personal story, Manish. Another thing that I would like to talk about now that we have the opportunity to to speak with you here today, to learn how you structure your learning. We all only have 24 hours a day. We want to learn about new companies, check out on our current portfolio, but we also want to learn things about just life in, in general. How do you prioritize what to spend time on whenever it comes to learning? Like if you could put hours, I don't know if that's, that's too specific. How do you ensure that you are aligned on the inside and on the outside like we talked about before and continue to, to learn? What is the process you have during the day and how do you prioritize? Well, I think it's pretty simple. You know, I read three newspapers a day. So if I'm not traveling, et cetera, and I get these newspapers, I, and I read the physical papers. So I haven't moved those to Kindle or whatever. So that is kind of happening every day. Then beyond that, the reading depends on what's going on. If I am active and drilling down on some business, then there'll be a lot of reading related to that company, 10Ks and transcripts and quarterlies and you know, whatever. So there's, uh, you know, just trying to understand the business. And beyond that, then, you know, I love to read different books. I really love to read business biographies and business autobiographies. There'll always be some of that. So for example, recently, I ran into a book called the Caesar's Palace Coup. Caesar's Palace went bankrupt a few years back. A casino is a tremendous business. And a casino like 
Caesars is beyond a tremendous business. That type of business should never go bankrupt. Okay, so somehow the Wall Street yo-yos succeeded in bankrupting an unbelievable business with an unbelievable moat. So I just wanted to get behind it to understand what, what happened, right? And it's a thriller. This book is like Barbarians at the Gate. Now, I am never going to invest in a gambling stock or Caesar's Palace or any of that. That's not of interest. But I'm just enjoying the book, so that's fine, you know. Then I recently read another book called Backable. This is written by Sunil Gupta. And you know this CNN doctor anchor Sanjay Gupta. So this is his brother. And uh, this is a great book on how to get people to back you, whether you're raising a fund or uh, trying to get VCs to back you or, you know, just in different areas of, the, of your life, how to get people to get behind you. And he did a tremendous job. He's got a great framework. I always have so many books I buy that I have not read yet. So my library is kind of out of control right now. But uh, what I do is I just, you know, go through the large number of books I have sitting around, which I haven't read yet. And then I just pick one that looks interesting and then go from there. If it doesn't grab me or whatever, then, you know, which happens to a lot of books, I just, I don't need to complete it. I go to the next book. One of the reasons why I asked that question, Man, is, is that, well, first of all, I would, you know, I'd like to clone you if, if I can, you know, it, this poetic thing about cloning a cloner, I, I sort of like that thought. So I learned that you spent six weeks figuring out why Ted Wessler and David Eichhorn bought GM, which was later turned into like you buying GM, but specifically Fiat Chrysler. We sort of like a story for another day, but I heard you talk about how you also want to throw away ideas in like less than a second or less than a minute at least. So I'm, I'm sort of like curious in, in terms of how you carve out time when, whenever you see something like this and you're like, wow, that makes no sense. And you still find time to spend, I don't know, six weeks into it. And then there are other things you don't. It seems like you have extremely flexible schedule since you can do that. And, and how do you, I guess, I don't know if this sounds the wrong way, so please don't take it as such, but how do you carve out six weeks into perhaps something else you should be doing and then prioritize and say, I don't understand this, but I still want to get to the bottom of why David and Ted are doing this? I think one of the first things is I learned from Buffett. Two things I learned from Buffett, which are very important. One is run an empty calendar. Other than putting Stig on my calendar, I don't put anything else on my calendar. So typically, in a typical week, I have like one or two kind of some set calls or meetings or something. But for the most part, the calendar is empty. So I don't have to be a certain place at a certain time. I don't have to call someone or whatever. So that's very important. Protect your calendar. Keep it completely flexible. And the second is be really good at saying no. So Buffett gets a lot of requests. You know, senators will call him and congressmen will call him and big company CEOs will call him asking all kinds of things. He's really good at saying no. So that frees up a lot of time when you don't just say yes to everything. And uh, so those are important. But the other thing is that we are in a business which is an extremely forgiving business. Or like what Buffett says, that there are no call strikes. So if I spend 10 seconds on a business and I say, I'm not interested, and it goes up 1,000x, well, that's happened many times. We don't really care about that. So mistakes of omission are extremely common in our business. The good news is there's enough opportunity that even if you miss 
hundreds and thousands of great businesses. You can still do fine. And so I think curiosity is an important trait. So like when I studied GM, I was just puzzled. I hated the auto business. I hated General Motors, all these CapEx and garbage products and everything else. And I said, why would these two smart guys own this company? And I just wanted to answer that question. So I said, I'm going to dig in. So, you know, Darwin said that when you see disconfirming evidence, write it down because the brain is really good at forgetting those things. So this was disconfirming evidence. This made no sense. So sometimes if you see things that don't make any sense, that's a really good reason to drill down. So if people have flexible in the calendar, one thing I would encourage everyone to do is I'm holding a book up here to the camera, which makes no sense since this is a podcast, but Monis can see this. It's the book Rich and Wise and Happier. We had William Green on two weeks ago. And as some of you might remember, the first chapter of that book that was with Monis Papra, which is absolutely wonderful chapter. And whenever I said that to, to Monis here before we started recording, he said, no, 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 don't read chapter one, it's with some yo-yo. You should, you should go to chapter six and read about Nick's sleep. That's where, where the nugget is. But I just wanted to mention that if people out there, they're sitting here at the Berkshire weekend, and now we're sitting here with Manish, they can win William's book. We made a raffle with, with William. It's absolutely a brilliant book. And I know this is just a bit of, of the cough here, Manish, but is there something specifically you want to highlight from William's book? Let's just do a huge clock so people can go out and, and buy this wonderful book. Well, I think First of all, William is a very gifted writer. And sometimes I felt like I talked to William for two hours and it's three sentences that come out of the two hours that actually make it into the book. So he has had a lot of experience when he was a reporter for Time and Bloomberg. He interviewed all these heads of state, etc. So William is a great journalist and he has this gift of extracting the essence of a person. And I think that when I read what William wrote about me, I felt like he completely got me. And so if you actually read what he wrote about how I think about things, that is never going to change. So like, for example, he actually got the fact that one of the things which was in my owner's manual was that they told me I love to play games. They said, your programming but they said it is very specific kind of games. So he's, they said, first of all, the outcome of the game has to depend on you. It cannot depend on a team. So for example, I would not enjoy very much being on a soccer team, okay? Because that's like a team sport. That's not who I am. I would probably enjoy a game like chess or bridge or blackjack a lot more than soccer, because those are individual pursuit games. The second is that I like to play games where I think I can win those games. So I like to play games where the outcome depends on me and where I think I can win those games. And then what William actually nailed down correctly is the reason I enjoyed my first company, TransTech, so much in the early days, because in the early days, it was a game. So what I used to do was I used to send 200 letters a week to CIOs because it was an IT company, because 200 was a minimum amount you could send as letters to get discounted postage rate from the post office for, you know, if you sorted by zip code and you ordered the letters, they gave you a lower rate, right? And that was important 
because I had no money. So every week I'd send 200 letters. And then every week I'd make 200 calls plus the calls from the earlier week. So it was this engine where 200 letters were going out every week. Maybe three or 400 calls were happening every week. And then all of that would result in two or three meetings every week. And then after a few weeks, there'd be a close. The person becomes a client, right? So the sales funnel, suspect, prospect, qualified lead, close. It was a game for me. I enjoyed that so much because I was interested in the statistics and winning that game, right? So for me, the deal was, can I, how many can I close? And how does that work? So William nailed down. He said, Dakshana is a game. And he's absolutely right. I view Dakshana as a game, just like I view TransTech as a game. Pabrai funds is a game because it's all mathematical. It's the returns and assets and all of that. It's a game. And it's a single player game. And so Pabrai funds is a game. Dakshana is a game. TransTech was a game. Bridge is a game. Blackjack is a game. I'm a game player. You know, I was so excited when I got banned in Vegas by a casino. Because I have a blackjack system that beat them. I only put $3,000 at risk and I took $150,000. And they, they told me, never come back again. You have a lifetime ban. That was great because it proved the system works. They were scared. You won the game. It was similar to that. Yeah, so it's great. And the thing is, the good news is I'm not banned from Vegas. So I'm still working on that game to get more bans. So I'll be working in the next few months and few years to increase those bands. Wonderful. Manish, before we, we let you go, we, we always want to give you an, an opportunity to, to give a handoff to where people can learn about more you, Parifans, Daskana, whatever you want to give a handoff to. Well, I would say uh, William's book, Richer, Wiser, Happier. I think uh, he did a great job. Forget the chapter one on some <laughs> yo-yo. <laughs> you might also enjoy my blog, Chai with Pabrai or my YouTube channel. And I think those are good places uh, to go. Fantastic. Manish, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and make time yet again here during the Berkshire weekend to speak with us. That's absolutely amazing. Thank you, Stig. Always a pleasure. All right, fellow value investors, if you're listening to this episode as soon as it goes out, I hope you enjoy the rest of the Berkshire weekend. Trey and I will be back 22nd of May for the annual episode where we'll unpack the Q&A session with Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. If you want to ensure that you don't miss out on that one, remember to subscribe to our free podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever app you're using. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.